Um, well, this week I came upon a little bit of a realization that we are a culture that is obsessed with testing. Like, we, we love tests. Like, they're everywhere. I don't know if you've noticed this. Like, I, 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 I saw a news article that was for an advertisement on how to use nowinstock.net, which is a website some of you may be familiar with. It used to be used for fun things like video game consoles, collectible figurines. Then COVID hit, and that website got used for toilet paper. You know, so that was entertaining. But this week, it's COVID tests. Like, everybody's trying to get their hands on COVID tests. And I was like, you know, just incredible demand for it. Like, we want binary results. We want a yes or no. We want, like, a, a, a quick, really simple yes or no. And I just went on to CVS.com, and I was like, what other tests are there, right? Like, there's tons of tests, so many tests, right? Like, there's, there are tests for pregnancy. Those are kind of the famous ones. There are tests for blood sugar. There are all kinds of tests, hundreds of them. I even found blood sugar tests for diabetic dogs. Like that's how narrow like things went down the list. And I was like, we love to like have results and know what's going on. But this morning, there's one test that just gets, it just sits on the shelf. And most people don't really care about this particular test. Most people don't have a particular concern, and yet I think it's of paramount importance, and I think Jesus would argue the same. This morning, the test that we're going to look at is in 1 John, and it is the do we love God test. It's the do I love God? Do, do we as a group, do we love God? Do you love God? And John gives us some very simple diagnostics, some very simple signs and evidences of if there's love for God. Like, you don't have to guess. You don't have to be like, I'm not sure if I love God. And you might say, why do I care? Like, it seems like rather an abstract question, loving God. I'm not really sure that's a big deal. But when Jesus, in Matthew 22, when, when he is confronted and someone's like, oh, I got a tricky question for Jesus, let me ask him a hard question. They, they ask him, what's the most important thing you could do? You remember Jesus' response, right? Matthew 22, 37 to 40. He's like, oh, that's easy. You're like, I don't think I would have that response. But his response is, love God. And he's like, oh, and a bonus that's attached to it, love other people. And so here we have that, right? Like, love God. It is a question of paramount importance. It is something that each one of us have a yes or no answer to. And this morning, John is going to guide us through where are we at? Where are we at individually? Where are we at corporately? So I think there's great hope. We need to consider the context of 1 John, though. We're, we're a good chunk of the way through it. We've been preaching through the letter of 1 John. I want you to remind, remind yourself where we've been so far. It's going to be hard because John is a very challenging book to read. Even just this morning, sitting down and reading it, you're like, wow. Like, there are so many things woven into five chapters but he's addressing two main things. He's addressing false teachers that have risen up in the church and they're doing something very specific. They're saying, hey, I'm not really sure Jesus was in the flesh. So they're questioning the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. So some kind of false teaching about who Jesus is. And there's also uh, some, some sort of teaching that maybe is teaching like that they become sinless. They've reached this point where they're like, oh, I just don't sin anymore. So he's addressing these false teachers and trying to identify them, being like, that's a heresy. Like, that, that's not Christianity, guys. Watch out for that. That's dangerous. But he's also simultaneously in this letter trying to encourage people. He's trying to go, hey, uh, if you're really in Christ, there is great hope for you. 
and he's admonishing them to deeper love, to, to do the things that they know they need to do as Christians. He's commending Christians. So he has a dual purpose in this letter to, to both confront wrong thinking and then encourage those who are in the faith. And so that thread is going to run through all of this morning as we move through our text So we're not going to read the text just for interest of time. It's a rather large section, but if you do have a Bible or a a paper Bible or a digital Bible or you're joining us online, you have another device or something, open up to 1 John chapter 4 um, because we're going to be walking our way through 1 John chapter 4 and we're not really going to move around to other passages. So you can just stay there and camp in 1 John 4 and your Bible will be in the right spot and you can follow along with me. So with that in mind, uh, the first thing we see, the first test, the first, first thing that John gives us to give us an indicator of if we love God or not is sign number one. It's verse 7 through 12. Is there one another love? That's right out of the gate. He gives us the first thing of an indicator. Do you love God or not? So it's verse 7. We're only going to read the first half of it. He says, beloved, let us love one another. So we've at least got the, 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 the groundwork here. He's going to elaborate on this idea extensively. We're going to keep coming back to this idea. It's not going to be something we're going to move past. But we need to get down to a definition of what is this one another love that he's commending to us. And so to do that, we need to look back a little bit. We need to look back in 1 John chapter 3 and look that this has already come up. Some of your Bibles might even have a heading of something similar to loving one another or one other love in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And Andrew preached on this two weeks ago and did a great job, so I don't want to necessarily repeat everything he just said, but I want to hit the high points here just to recap in case you weren't here with us or two weeks memory, uh, things just kind of slipped the mind. So uh, just to rehash uh, very briefly, verse 11, reading that, it says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So there's a should there. Right? Like, you should do this. And, and he goes on and elaborates this idea. And then he concludes in verse 17 and 18 in chapter 3. And he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way, just in case you're wondering what translation. Um, But this is, just quoting Andrew and his summary of love from this section, uh, love is affection in action, so it's doing things, that corresponds with God's truth. It's not just general love, like there's a specific nature of what it is. It's grounded in a specific idea, rationale, reasoning, has a certain motive. All of those things are important to what love is. So this one another love that we're supposed to be showing towards one another. So practically, I mean, these are opportunities for us to remind ourselves of just right out of the gate. Like this is a command in chapter 4 verse 7. Like, what are the things that we're doing? What are the things that we're doing as members of this congregation to love one another? That's the first diagnostic here. Like, is there anything? It's a question I can't answer for you. It's a question that you have to think about. And John's giving this to you here as a first indication of, like, what's going on. The first hint. The first beginning of things. And continuing on in verse 7, he says, For love is from God just kind of slides that in there. And he'll elaborate this extensively in the rest of the passage. So we're going to get there. He, he at least tells us, though, very quickly, 
what the source of this one another love is. It's not you, it's not me. It's something coming from God. It's a divine activity, this one another love. So moving on though, what are the different things that we're seeing here? We're seeing that in chapter four, there's a slight change. There's a change here in that we start to see more about the audience. John gives us a preview of, of this command to love and the people that he's commanding specifically. So looking back at verse seven, he says, again, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. On the other side of it, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So he's beginning to show us that there, and I'm going to be, this is a painfully pedantic uh, illustration, but I'm going to be using my hands a lot. Uh, just like left and right. Like he begins to paint of like, if you, you're not a child of God, you're not born of him, then, then you don't love one another. If you do love God, and you are a child of God, you do. And he's commanding these specific people, going, you are the ones that know you need to love one another, and you should, and you ought to. And he's commending them that, to that. He's specifically zeroing in on the people who are capable of doing it and going, you're the ones to do it, go do it. And he gives us the reason in just a minute, but I think it's helpful here to look at the fact that the audience of people, it's plural. He's talking to a group of them and he's instructing them because they're capable of actually doing it. Um, the back half of verse eight, this phrase uh, that is, is kind of a landmine in and of itself because of just how much is there, God is love, comes up in, in verse 16. So we're going to return to that in a few minutes. So if you're like, I want to talk about God is love, don't worry, just wait. We'll get there. But that, that right there, that truth, it underlines the source. Where does this one another love come from that these people are capable of doing? It's a reminder, God's the source of that. That's where it came from. That's why these people are capable of doing it. Um, and, and you might say this seems maybe a little bit overly harsh, right? Like saying that people who, who aren't born of God aren't capable of this love. Like that only those who, who are in Christ and been born again are capable of it. And yet John paints in these, these stark pictures. All throughout John, we've seen this division of, of you're either in death or you're in life. You're, you're the spirit of the Antichrist. You're the spirit of God. You, you, are, uh, you are someone who loves or you're someone who hates. He's trying to paint in, in stark contrast to highlight there's a difference. There's no gray zone between this area of if you've been born again or you're not born again. And I think this contrast is helpful. Like as you think about our particular contributions to this community, right? Like, you know, I'm kind of the, the like fellowship community encourager, so it almost seems fitting that I would go here, but it's, it's in the text. Like, what are we individually doing to contribute to the one another love that's occurring in this church? Right? Like that's the diagnostic question here is what am I doing? Like, I'm not asking what are you doing publicly so that other people might know. It's not my question. My question is what are we each individually doing? And I think there can be, there can be a little bit of a burn and a tingle even there if you are in Christ. And I don't want to too quickly uh, assunge our consciences, but at the same time, like, I, I do want to just highlight, like, John is asking these hard questions and he wants us to answer them. 
He's not saying we're sinless. 1 John 1 clearly reminds us of that. So that's, that's not the point here, but it's an issue of salvation. And he's questioning what's going on. Are we contributing love? Are we engaged in the, the love of one another? And all of his point is that this is a distinct mark of a Christian because it's, it's coming from God. That's the origin of it. So looking back at, at verses 8 through 10, like the, the end of verse 8 reminds you, like the reason why they're capable of this is because they're direct connection with God. Because God is love. Like he's the source of where this one another love came from. Verse 9 and 10 continue. In this, so here's how it's going to be, be evident to us, not the only way, but one of the ways. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So two things, sent his son so that we might live. Verse 10 continues, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here in these two and a half verses, he's contrasting. Like again, this contrast of like, here's the love of God, what it looks like. By the way, here's what yours looks like. He's drawing very, very vivid contrast of going, are you still having trouble zeroing in on what one another love should look like? Here's some evidences of what it looked like in its purest form. Here's how God shows love. And so he, he gives three beautiful evidences here. First, God sent his son to the world that we might have life and that he would be a propitiation, a covering. So going through those three things, like God's love is evident in the fact that God is the kind of God that sends, right? Thank you, Russ. Uh, right, like that, that, that's amazing that God would send. He didn't need to. He's under no compulsion to love sinful people. And, and to the second point of giving life, he is under no obligation to provide life to where there is spiritual death and rebellion. It's under no obligation to do that. And yet God is the kind of God that does that. And that is John's point. Like, look at that love. Behold the purity of that. And now start looking for it, like around you and from you. And the third one is that, that Jesus would be a propitiation. This is kind of one of those fancy words that we often forget the meaning to, but it's the idea of a covering. Covering for sin right? Like it, that, that God is the one who, who kind of whites out or erases, washes uh, white like snow, the psalmist would say, right? Like this idea of, of our sin and transgression, which is against God through the work of Jesus would be removed so that we might through Christ stand holy and righteous. This is the love of God. And so the question for us, like thinking about the sending God, are we the kind of people that love our enemies before they love us? Right? Like God loved the world, sent his son long before we ever desired him. Are we, as we show one another love, are we the kind of people who love our enemies? Christ calls us to that. Thinking about the life-giving love of the Father by sending his son, are we the kind of Christians that desire to see spiritual life where there is death? When you see someone who is clearly in rebellion to God and walking from him, are you the kind of person that doesn't just desire moral reform or better life choices? You desire that there would be spiritual life where there is death. Are you that kind of person? And, and thinking about the propitiating nature of God covering offenses. Are you the kind of person that holds on to a grudge? Are you the kind of person that forgives? Are you the person who overlooks an offense? 
right? Like, and I'm saying to you, but like, guys, I'm looking in the mirror here too. Like, I, I don't want you to, 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 to see me as, as, as speaking out of judgment. Like, these cut to the core. These are hard questions. That's the purity of God's love. And if we're in relationship with him, we should see that radiating out from us. So that, that, that's the mindset that John has for us here. So practically, what are we going to see? Verses 11 and 12. Th- these verses, I, I would commend you if you have a paper Bible or some sort of digital device in, in front of you that highlights, like underline or highlight verses 11 and 12, because 11 and 12 act as this, this miniature summary and, and guiding map to the whole rest of our passage this morning. That They underscore the key points. So if you're reading this like a month from now or a year from now, and you're like, I can't remember what this passage means because it's a hard passage, these verses can be like this great kind of recalibration of like, oh, that's what John's getting at. So we're going to talk about in each one of these ideas in detail. We've already done it a little bit. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Exactly what we've just discussed, right? Like if there's one another love occurring, there should be evident one another love. Like there is a command to do it, but it should be happening. That's the first evidence. The second evidence is in verse 12, and it's this funny verse that many people try to put too much brain power on. It says, no one has ever seen God. (laughs) Uh, You're like, what does he mean there? Okay, so I want to play a little game with you just to make this fun, wake you up a little bit. So on count of three, point to God. One, two, three. Now be pointed. Okay, that, yeah. <laughs> I got one person who's, who's uh, wise to my game. Uh, uh, but John's point here is that if we love one another in the love that Christ has for us, if we do that same type of love, God's love now becomes evident in our midst. And we can now take our finger and point and be like, oh, those two people over there, look at how they're loving one another. That's God. There's God right there. There is him working in his love. Like we can zero in on, the, uh, on God making himself revealed as he works through us and reveals his radical love to the world. So that's his point in verse 12. Like let's not get into to sidebars and weeds on that because it seems confusing, but it's not. That's his point is that we're making the visible God or the invisible God visible by showing love to one another. That's his point there. It says, he continues on in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. First one abides. We're going to talk about this word extensively. It's also mentioned a lot in, in John 15, but it's mentioned extensively in our passage too. So we're going to get into abides in us and then continues on the end of verse 12, and his love is perfected in us. Another concept that John will also develop here at the end of chapter 4. These two ideas, they're actually two more of the signs. So if you just want to write your sermon notes ahead of, you can kind of cheat, because there they are right there. He gives us a preview of where he's going. So let's do exactly that. We've got a lot to cover. There's a lot of verses here. Um, the second sign is, is there abiding in God? So this starts in verse 13, and the reason why I skipped, went quickly over verse 11 and 12 is that 11 and 12 are almost exclusively elaborated in the other verses. Uh, there's, there's so much here in John, we could probably preach this passage for like four weeks, guys, but I'm, I'm going to try to get us through by lunch. I promise. I'm going to make it happen. Verse 13, it says, uh, and, and 
by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So he's going, the evidence of, of loving God, there's one another love being evidenced. There's also abiding in God. And abiding in God looks a particular way. One of the particular evidences of abiding in God, John says, is that you will see the spirit of God. You'll be observed the spirit of God. And you might say, well, that's not visible. And John would, would, would kind of agree and disagree with you on, based on the previous verse, but John speaks in abstraction. John, John loves to just kind of touch a concept and move on. And he just assumes his, his readers know what's going on. Paul, on the other hand, elaborates it, right? Like we, we very famously know Galatians chapter five. Kind of what does the spirit look like is the question we're trying to answer. Paul answers that a little bit more explicitly. John's like, well, if you have the spirit, you know what the spirit looks like, so just look for the spirit. And you're like, all right, John, well, you're, you're right. But John fleshes it out a little bit more, right? John, or sorry, Paul, too many people here. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, he lists off the fruit of the Spirit, right? What are, what are they? They were love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these different things. Some of you are like not a coconut. I know, I know some of you are going there. Um, if you're new, you're like, what is he talking about? It's a long story. Um, but the, the point here is like there are visible, there are obvious indicators of someone's abiding in God because you're going to see the Spirit working. And for, for those of us who, who are Christians, we have the spirit inside of us, you're like, oh yeah, I know what that is, right? Like we, we kind of intrinsically know. And John's going, look for that. So that's a question for us individually. It's also a question for us corporately. Like, like is our community, Clayton Valley Church, are we the kind of people where we can be like, oh, look at God's spirit. He's working over there. He's working over there. That's so cool. Wow, that's amazing. And that's a diagnostic question for us as a community as well. So I think it's an important question to ask here. Do people see that we're abiding because they see the Spirit working? Or, or do, do people see that we as a church are abiding because they see a Spirit working? Like, are they seeing a, a clique of people who just happen to connect on demographic or social issues? Or are they seeing the radical love of God? These are the questions that come into the question of abiding. The, the other thing about abiding, and we talked about this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, John Klobuchar led us through this idea. So John is mixing a new idea into this love concept. He, he's going, not only will there be the spirit evidenced, but there'll also be like right things said about God and Jesus. Like, like the people who are abiding in God, they're abiding in him, they'll have the correct understanding of who God and Jesus are. They won't be wrong on that because they're abiding with him. So obviously they know the character of God, who he is. They know what he's done through his son Jesus. They have right thoughts about that. And that's not like a doctrinal test in the sense of like, you know, did they read all the right books and the right scholars? It's like, no, they have the correct understanding of who God is and what his plan is. And they believe that in their core. They don't just say the words. There's, there's truthfulness. So we're going to see in the next few verses these action words that express not just the words coming out of our mouth, but then also the conviction that's held down in our heart. So continue reading. and We'll look at verses 14 and 15. Consider the action words, seen and testify. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
whoever confesses, another one of those words, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So those abiding in God have the right words coming out of their mouth because they have their faith placed in the proper object. Like they, they have their faith placed in properly on God. Um, specifically, they, they confess that, that, uh, that, that Jesus is the savior of the world. <laughs> you might say, uh, that's it? Like it seems kind of a low bar to get over. Uh, but for these particular people, like that was an issue. That was a problem, right? Like there was some sort of false teaching coming into the church about the character and nature of Jesus where they're going, oh, we don't really need him to be the savior. And we might scoff at that and be like, oh, that was ridiculous. We would never do something like that in the church right now. But man, like if you're paying attention to some of the false teaching out there in the church right now, like that is alive and well. That is doing just great, it has rebranded itself in lots of different ways, but there are plenty of people. You, you can just search the internet, turn on the TV, there are plenty of people that are like, you don't need any saving, you're cool with God, no matter what. You're fine, don't worry about it. We don't need Jesus as a savior. We don't need him dying. That's just bloody and unnecessary. That, that, that's just ridiculous. Why, why are you believing something like that? And John is going, um, yeah, that's because that's what God's plan was to cover sin. That's a part of who God is, the kind of God that would overlook an offense by doing something about it. He would act to save us. That's who God is. It's in his character to save. And so a mistake about the character and nature of Jesus is a mistake and error about the character of God. And if you're believing in the wrong God, like you're in a big trouble. Like back to the do we love God test. You're loving a different God. You just invented a new God and you love him and not the real God. And at some point, that's going to be an issue. And you're going to want to consider that, John says. They, they have people, though, who are abiding in God. They have right theology. You, you can't have the wrong understanding of who God is. And he elaborates that extensively in verse 16, which we'll get there in a moment. But they also get God wrong, though. Like, look at the beginning of verse 16. He says, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. So, so they have like a right understanding of what God's love is like. They, they understand, not, not just an abstraction, they're like, oh, I get what God's love is like. I understand that. That makes sense to me. Uh, this is the age-old lie. Like this is the problem of Genesis 3, doubting and questioning the love of God. Right? Like, this is an age-old problem. God really love you? Does he really love you? Are you sure? That's, that's the error that's going on here. They're, they're going, you know, there's obviously some sort of false teaching that's going on and saying, yeah, that's not really what God's love is. It's questioning God's love. And I, I think here there's the admonition of those who are abiding in God. They understand God's love, not in an intellectual sense only, but on, on a, a trust level, on a belief level. Like there is not just the understanding of who God's, or what God's love is, but also experiencing that and knowing that and trusting that. There's great hope in that. Um, and as a result of being in right relationship with that, there is a guaranteed outflow of that love. Like what, what is going on with, with God's love as it is, there is a certain outflow of that. If you abide in him, there's no way that that love can't be flowing out from you. 
It's John's point here in this passage. There's just no possible way that could be happening. And so you need to look for that. And he, he gives us this, this climatic crescendo in verse 16, like this, this just profound statement that God is love. Right? It's just, it's just there. Like, it's just sitting there, and you're like, oh, wow. Like, what, what, a, what a powerful statement. And he, he, just, he just moves on. He just keeps going. He, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So here we have this climatic truth. I, I teased it in verse 8, but it is, it is going and diving into like the deepest inner workings of God and trying to expose one of his fundamental things that's true about him. Uh, we need to be careful to read the grammar in this correctly and not, not assign to God uh, just that this is his like, cardinal attribute. This, this passage is not teaching that. It doesn't say that. The grammar would be very different if it was trying to teach that. It is saying that God, in who he is, he has existed in Trinity for, for, for eternity past and will continue to do so forever. There has been love abiding in him forever. Like between the different members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like there has been love there. Like so definitionally, like part of what, what makes God God amidst his many other perfections is there is the presence of love. And it is perfectly balanced with all of his attributes. It is, it is active. It is not passive. God is engaged in, in the, the moments of history, and yet he does not fluctuate or change. So there is this strange truth where you're like, oh, I kind of understand that, right? Like, I understand love. Like, we've experienced love in our lives. But the kind of love that God has in this purest form is so profoundly different it's so much purer. That's why John can get away with saying, like, you want a definition of love? It's God. That's it. Like, it's so wrapped up in his nature and character that you can just be like, that's just who God is. He's never not going to be love. He always has been love. All of his actions are marked by it. Now, he's also, in 1 John 1, 5, he's also light. He's holy, is the point of that passage. There are many other attributes that are true about him, but John is rejoicing in the fact that God is a loving God. Like, you think about the gods that people invent, not just in our culture, but throughout all of time. Love is not normally something you include in a false idol, right? Like, not just like Baal or some other false idol, right? Like, just think about the love of, of, of money or, or success or, or uh, you know, just all of these uh, uh, approval of others. Like, th these are ruthless, harsh masters who, who we desire to serve and get love from, and they don't give us love. And, and here's God, creator of the universe, who is the source and, and like the purest form of love. And so my, my admonition to Christians, if you've been in the church for a measure of time, is have you grown complacent with the fact that God is loving? And you're like, oh, I know that. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, the psalmist is talking about love. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you grown comfortable with that, Christian, if you've been around the church for a measure of time? If you haven't come to the place where, where you are child of God, have you unbalanced the love of God and assumed upon that love that it would allow sin to exist in the presence of a holy God? Are you just thinking God's so loving he'll just let everything slide? That's not God, friend. 
Christian, if you're stuck in repetitive sin and you keep returning back to something and you have failed to repent, do you impose upon the love of God assuming that he will cover what you desire to still clutch onto as sin? Like these are the kinds of questions that we have to think about. If we're abiding in the, the source of love, and we're going to talk about this extensively in chapter 5 when we get there, but if we're abiding in God and that love is coming out from us, it will be evidenced in our behavior. And God is so loving and so good, right? Like, it just it kind of, you know, just even thinking about, like, practically, like, talk to a Christian who's been a Christian for a measure of time. Talk to them about the love of God. Like, you will be amazed to hear how they speak. They're so encouraged. As you grow deeper in your relationship with God, you become more and more profoundly convinced, not just intellectually, but experientially, that God is a loving God. I think that's a real source of joy for us. But, but there needs to be abiding in God to experience that. And so that's John's point. Is there abiding in God? Let's move on to the third sign. So the third sign is, is there perfected love with a settled peace? So what's going on? This is verse 12 coming back to us in the very end of it where he says, and his love is perfected in us. So there's some sort of result where if we're abiding in God, if we love one another, there's this perfection and there's this settledness. Uh, one of the, those is from the passage, one isn't. But either way, we'll look at them in turn. The perfectedness. I think this is a, a good word. Uh, depending upon what translation you have sitting in front of you, it might say completed, possibly. Uh, looking at, at the text, verse 17 through 20. We're just going to read that whole section because we're going to handle it all together. In this, notice the contrast. There's a contrast between those who don't have this love and don't love God and those who do. And he moves back and forth between them. So we'll handle them individually. But let's read 17 through 21. It says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfected love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And then this, this profound statement, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has, has, or sorry, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, so handling these ideas, this, this idea of perfected love, he, he's con comparing and contrasting our love without him versus God's love. He's going, these look very different. So let me help you kind of understand the differences between these two. He starts with our love. Verse 19, like, our love by itself, it's not capable of starting this. Like, God is the one who started this kind of love. God is the one who is the source of this kind of love. So first of all, that's different. And verse 20 helps us a lot to show what John thinks about our love versus what is going on with God's love. Verse 20, the first half of it, if anyone says, I love God, but then he hates his brother, that obviously can't be true. He's lying to you. So our love by itself, it can't truly love one another. 
That, that, that's his point in this. Like, like if you're like, oh, oh, I love God, but then all your actions is kind of mixed bag and, and you don't really love your brother, that's a good indication uh, of if you don't have the love that we're talking about. It's not there. And the back half of verse 20 says the idea really that our love that, that cannot do what is right in front of us, let alone God's love. Like we, we can't possibly love God if we don't love the very people who are right in front of us. So, so diagnostically, like if there's a lack of love towards others around us, you're like, okay, well, obviously it can't be the love of God. It just can't be. So, so where are you at? And, and then he contrasts the perfect love of God. So this, this idea of perfected, it's this word telos, which doesn't really translate super well over into English. Translations kind of try to ga- grapple with it. But it has this idea of like, it's complete or it's a sure thing. It's a done deal. Uh, Jesus, when he's on the cross, he's like, it's finished. <laughs> like, it's telos, it's done, it's done deal, sealed deal. That's the idea of this love. The picture here is that God has started some kind of love in, in these people that is a, a sure thing. It's a done deal. It, it has begun and it is going to continue through. And that's why his mind goes to judgment. That's why he connects the dots of going, this love is perfected. It's a sure thing. You can be confident that if God is the origin of this love, it will continue on and, and it is stable. It's not subject to, to failure. It, it is, there's confidence in the love that is occurring here. This love is perfected in, in verse 19 because we're not the ones who started it. God is the one who's setting, capable of setting this love into motion, and it's now at work in us. So the question is, like, are we trying to manufacture and create a love that's really not working, or are we receiving the love from God and its purest source and then giving that out to other people? Is it an outflow of our relationship and abiding with God? And it's perfected because it's stable, because it relies on God and it receives from him and then gives out? Or are we trying to do it all ourselves? That's John's point here. He's going, what kind of love do you have? And that love, if it's the right type, it's perfected, it's confident, it is, it is going to finish there is a settled peace to it. That's, again, why he, he draws the connection over to this issue of judgment. It, it, we don't need to read through the whole passage again, but the comparison occurs again. Like, our love by itself fears final judgment, right? Like, if you're trying to do this all by yourself, you have this nagging feeling that God is at some point going to be like, I don't love you anymore. I'm done with you. You have this nagging, looming feeling of like, I'm trying to do this, and I'm not sure I'm making God happy enough. I'm not sure I'm jumping high enough. That's the nagging feeling there. Our love by itself, it fears punishment. That's his point in verse 18. Like, like if it perfected love, there's a confidence there. You're like, okay, God loved me in the past. He continues to love me in the present. He will continue to love me in the present as I live my life. And then when I stand before him, oh man, like, that love's just going to continue. It's going to keep going. There's a confidence in that. It's not a confidence in our own actions or in our own moral standing. It is a confidence in the love that we have received from God through Christ. And that is the perfected love that doesn't fear punishment. God's perfect love grants us a settled peace. 
it, it, is, it is a certain thing. I think it's very helpful for us. Like, what kind of confidence do we have? Like, are we just stuck on the religious treadmill of love, trying to do a little bit harder to make God happy? Are we constantly fearing that someday God's just going to give up on us? Or are we the people who, who are maybe, we're abiding in God's love, but we're downcast right now. Christian, if you're downcast, look to God. Look to the cross. Remind yourself of the love of God. Right? Like there are genuine moments in the Christian life where you're like, oh man, I know God loves me, but what is going on? Friend, look to the cross. Look to Christ, who is the demonstration of love. Look to God in his word. Rejoice in his character and trust in his love. Right? There, there is great hope for you, Christian, if you are downcast to find great joy in the love of God. If you're doubting God's love, he has begun it. If it has begun, there's confidence there in what God has begun. There's great hope. The final thing is that there is new obedience. So there is, there is some change and some shift here in 1 John. There's a reason why there's a chapter heading there. There's a slight shift in the argument. It's not a massive shift, but there is a conceptual shift. It's still tied to the discussion about love and the nature of who God is. We haven't left that subject, but he's mixing in back a new idea again. There, there is this concept of, of born of God, or a new birth. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about really the subject of obedience and how it relates to love. It's directly tied to love and who God is and our relationship to him. And as a result of all that obedience, we'll see like how long things last. How long is that going to go? So those are the three things we're going to look at in these four verses here as we look at the beginning of chapter 5. Verse 1 reads, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So he starts off, and he shifts the topic ever so slightly. He starts the long process of landing the plane. Right? Like John's got the landing gear out, and he's making some summary statements here. He's starting to bring all the big threads together. And John is making it clear that a new birth is, is required. And, and as a result, there's right belief. There's love for one another. There's abiding. All of these other different layers of what's occurring when someone loves God, they all come together, and, and they're this cohesive action. They're this cohesive thing. Some of those words are dangerous. Anyway, but yeah, like, it's all bound together, right? And so that, that's John's point here, is that there has to be a new birth there. John's making clear that that's required. And as a result, there's a new type of obedience that occurs as a result of all of those things put together. The obedience that comes from someone in that position, who loves God, abides in him, all of those things, looks different. That's John's point. And I think we kind of know this, right? Like verses two through three are some of those verses where if you're like a little bit cynical, you kind of read them and you almost scoff a little bit because he says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome, right? Like this is, that's a tough passage to read. Because you, you just, you're like, oh, I know that's true. I know it is, but there's days. 
right? Like you got those days where you're like, I know God, you got a good plan, but I'm having a tough time believing it today. Um, and again, I think that's where the encouragement of speaking to, to Christian brothers and sisters who have been further down the road than you can really come in. You know, as, as you grow in Christ, you start to realize, yeah, God's got some rules and some of them at the beginning, you're like, I don't want to do that. And then you start going, oh, there was wisdom in that. That, that was a good call. I'm sorry, God. Like, you were totally right. I forgive. You know, you, you, you start realizing God's commandments really aren't burdensome. And I think when we think about the love of God discussion that's happening in our culture, chapter 5, like, suddenly gets forgotten somehow. Right? Like, God just loves me and I can just do whatever I want. And John's like, ah, ah, ah. Like, no, no, no. Like, you'll obey and you'll want to obey. Because of the, your relationship with God, because you love him, you abide in him, and, and you, you love who he is, you're like, God, I trust you. If you say something, of course I'm going to do it. It's hard though, right? Like it is. It's, it's really challenging. Like this, this particular passage, his commandments are not burdensome, but they're not. Come to me. My, my burden is light, Jesus says. It's totally true. At the beginning, it doesn't seem that way, but as you begin to obey him, you're like, there's infinite wisdom in the plan of God. There's great hope in being obedient to him, even when it's not clear. You think about that, like that's, in Hebrews, like people are commended for their faith and obedience to God when they don't know what's going to happen, right? Like that's obedience sometimes. You're like, God, I don't know what's going to happen here. What if I tell the truth? <laughs> like, that could be a problem. But we do, because we're Christians, we love God. We know that telling the truth is the right thing to do. There's so many other examples. And John is painting here the picture that, that if you love God, you keep his commandments. It's linked together like a chain. They don't come apart, and they're either there or they're not. So how are you doing on that? And I think it's, it's not to put you on the treadmill and be like, hey, why don't you just try a bit harder? is you know God and his wisdom in outlining the plan for life. Like, like he has very simple, like, we, they, praise the Lord, we don't walk around with a giant rule book. Like, are you excited about that? I'm excited about that. Like, I see here stories of a loving God who is patient and has the best plan for life, and he tells us what it is. He doesn't keep us guessing. He's like, oh, by the way, don't do this. Do this. He, he doesn't, like hide the cookies up on the top shelf so no one can get to them. He, he's the parent that goes, this is clearly what the rules are here, and they're for your good. I, I think we need to remind ourselves of that and find great hope in that. And verse 4 is this, this encouraging, climatic, tie a big bow on it verse that brings all of our passage together. He says, for everyone, in verse 4, chapter 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is a phrase that's been developed all throughout 1 John. It is this phrase of great hope, great confidence. It is the picture of someone who has been born of God. All the things that we've discussed about them are true. And there is this victory over sin and lawlessness and, and all of the systems of the world, all of the rebellion against God and who he is and all of his perfection. 
there is this settled confidence of like this thing that God started, it's stable and it's gonna be brought to completion and God did it to his glory and his majesty and his honor and to his infinite love. He did this thing in you or whoever is born again. And so there's great hope here in that we overcome and this morning, we're going to approach the Lord's table. So uh, if you haven't already uh, grabbed the communion elements, there's some out in the lobby. If you're a Christian and you're in Christ and you'd like to celebrate the Lord's table with us, if you're joining us online, obviously we'll continue the practice of gathering for communion. So we'll see you next time when you're here. Uh, for those of you who are like, Eric, I don't know if I should take communion right now. I want to talk to you for a second while everybody's shuffling around. Um, Communion doesn't save you. Just a friendly reminder, like we don't believe that. Uh, and I remind you of that because uh, communion is a beautiful act of remembering and recalling the love of God. Um, but right now, if you're unsettled about things that I said, like I would just encourage you, like find me, find one of the deacons or uh, anyone maybe that you're close to, talk through them with this passage. I think that's gonna be really helpful for you. Um, if there's something where maybe it's just some nagging feeling and you need to get that settled in your mind, do that. Communion is not necessary for you if you're in that place right now, um, so just commend you towards that. Um, but this morning, I, I, we, we're in the habit regularly of taking communion. It's what we do as a church, to remember Christ. And it was kind of on the schedule this week. And so I was texting with Andrew and I'm like, oh, you know, should we do it? And sometimes if it doesn't fit, we don't do it. Like if you're like, the service doesn't really go that direction, not really sure about it, doesn't really connect fine and well. But I think this morning, the passage directly connects to the act of communion. It's very fascinating. There, there's something very unique that occurs in the gospels. All the gospel writers record communion, except for John. John doesn't have it. But John sends chapters talking about the upper room discourse, doesn't have communion in there. You're like, what's with that? That's weird. So let's, let's turn to John. Turn to John chapter 13. This is the only place we're going to turn this morning. I know. I said I wasn't going to take you anywhere. It's kind of not true. Um, John chapter 13. Instead of having the communion story, John gives us this. <laughs> In the very moment where you'd expect to be reading along in John and hear about communion, the Passover meal, you get John 13. It's a fascinating passage. I won't walk through all of it, but I'll read the first verse. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus had knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Doesn't that sound like exactly the same note we just hit on when we ended John chapter 5? Like that's exactly it. That's, that's what's going on in Jesus' mind. And then he talks from verses 2 all the way to verse 17, and he outlines to them not just in word how he loves them, but in action how he loves them. He washes their feet. A, a debasing act, humiliating act. He does that. And then the, to, to cap that all off, verse 18 through 33, he does that to his enemy, to Judas of all people. He does that to the person who's just about to betray him, like, right then. He shows radical love, and then he closes with the admonition that exactly parallels our passage for this morning. Read, read verse 33 and 34 of chapter 13 with me. He says, a new commandment 
I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So he's teaching them not just about his love for them. He's going, I am pouring that love out onto you, and now you are to go do that. Do, go do the same. The exact same note that we hit on this morning. Jesus' mind is focused and geared there when his, his actions, like he takes communion and he's like, hey guys, you've been doing this for a while. By the way, it's about me. But in the background of that is like his understanding of the love of God and who God is. I think that's really helpful as we come to the Lord's table. We're going to take a moment in prayer before we approach the elements. I want to do two things. First of all, I want to encourage you, uh, if there's uh, something in the message that um, had some sort of traction with you, like deal with that, be the first thing. Um, Second thing would be, I want you to take a moment of adoration. Like, praise God for who he is. Take a, like, we often spend time supplicating and, 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 and confessing, uh, but, but just praise God for who he is. Like, you just spent 45 minutes hearing about the love of God. Like, praise God for his love for a moment. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. And if there's sin in your heart right now that you need to address between you and God, take a moment and deal with that as well. So three things. Anything from the sermon, praise God for who he is and his character, And then if there's some sort of sin that you need to confess, deal with that now. And in just a moment, I'll bring us back together in prayer. We'll take the elements and we'll continue with the morning. Because we come to you together, um, we're overwhelmed by your love. <laughs> like, we, we can't even fully comprehend it and we're still overwhelmed. But that's how loving you are. God, thank you for displaying your love, not hiding it from us. You, you could have very quickly punished us and left us on our own. Left us without any indication of who you were. Yet you chose to reveal yourself in your love. And through your grace, you provided the path of propitiation, the path of covering for our sins so we might be holy and righteous before you through the work of Christ, through his, his act of obedience throughout all his life, and throughout his, his death, dying in the place where we deserve. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for communion. Thank you that you instituted that. It's an act of love towards us to remind us of your very love towards us. As we take it, I pray that you would guide our hearts. In your son's name, amen. Um, so if you have the elements with you, we're going to take the bread first. Uh, you can go ahead and grab that. We're not going to take it just yet. But just as a reminder from 1 Corinthians 11, what Paul instructs or tells us occurred in that very same evening during that same time. 
He says in chapter 11, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord, on the night he was betrayed, or Jesus, when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is, ta- which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, as, as you've taken the bread, I want you to consider the cup, too. Like, you think about our passage this morning, like, just the, the, the amazing love of God that it propitiates. Like, the blood is a visible reminder, or the, the cup is a visible reminder for you of the fact that, that a holy God desires a sacrifice and that he provides it himself. That's love. That's not you and I. It's a good thing to remind ourselves. So, as you think about that, take the cup, and, and as... Paul reminds us when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Just take that now. Pray with me. God, as we approach the week ahead, um, God, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't. But we know you. We know you and you're a loving God. So we trust you. We, we trust you in all things. God, and that, that should always be the posture and attitude of our hearts, but some weeks we're reminded of it more than others. Thank you for being a good God that's worthy of being worshipped. You're not arbitrary and capricious, just on a whim, loving, and then hating one other day. Thank you that you're consistent. Thank you that you're active in our lives, God. Thank you for the, the, the physical reminders of communion where we might be able to rejoice in the love that you have given us. Thank you for the hope that Christians have that stands unique from the world. God, it is even as, as 1 John's uh, just very stark contrast reminds us, if we are in Christ, we have great love that has been given to us. Let us be people who then love others. Let's not do it out of obligation, but as an outflowing of the love that you've given to us. Thank you for our church family and the way that you evidence the love of God here. Continue to do that, God. Continue to do that in greater degrees, not for our own glory, not for the glory of of our church's name or, or anything else, but for the glory of you so that you might be made known and so that others might understand who you are. That's the desire of our heart this morning. Pray as we worship you, as we go out, that our acts and our actions would be out of obedience because of our deep love for you and who you are. In your son's name, amen.